This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. As it turns out, it's actually rather challenging to develop an AI product or service business model that's going to work well with how enterprises actually buy. What we've seen, particularly with the trend in coronavirus, but also with the development of various AI startups that we've interviewed over the years, again, hundreds and hundreds of interviews since going all the way back to 2012, um, is that more and more companies are looking to find ways to make their AI solutions accessible. How do we involve less deep and robust integration with the client? How do we involve faster turnaround, more predictable turnaround for our AI result and deliverable? And this has the upside of being able to make an AI solution something that's more IT purchasable. We don't need as much iteration, as much experimentation. And sometimes that's good. Some companies, however, need to sell transformation. If you're selling an AI platform and you need people to now start doing AI in your system, in your software, leveraging it, working across different cross-functional teams, well, in that case, you don't want to just sell an IT-like solution. You actually do want to start to shake up the base, help the company encourage a new data infrastructure, new ways of working with teams, a culture that's more compatible with iteration and experimentation. But selling that transformation is hard. And it's particularly hard in these trying economic times. And so again, we're seeing more and more companies lean towards faster turnaround, faster value. And Lilt is a good example of a company doing just that. We speak this week with Spence Green, who's the CEO of Lilt. Lilt essentially does enterprise translation tasks. So they translate enterprise content. And they do this at scale, and they do this with some of the largest brands in the world. As it turns out, to take really good marketing content and transform it into Japanese, into German, into Spanish is, is not a trivial task. And to keep the brand voice is actually very hard. But how do we do that without making it too tough on the customer? Spence talks a lot about how they've framed the business and how they've made it more accessible for companies to be able to purchase Lilt's services without necessarily having to shake up the way that they do business, which sometimes is required for certain AI products. Again, it's not necessarily wrong, but it does make deployment and decision-making in terms of a purchase a little bit more challenging. And so Spence has a lot of great insights about what it looks like to sell AI into the enterprise. Uh, Lilt is a good example of an AI firm that sort of bypasses a lot of the AI hurdles that many other firms face. Some of you who've been longtime listeners, you might want to listen to our episode with Edited, just the way it's spelled, E-D-I-T-E-D, Edited. Uh, We interviewed their CEO not terribly long ago um, about how they've solved a similar problem, and you'll see a common pattern there in terms of what Spence talks about. So you want to know what it looks like to build something that's easy to deploy? Well, this is an episode for you. And if you're interested in selling AI into the enterprise, if you're a consultant or an AI services firm or a vendor, then be sure to check out Emerge Plus, which is our online library library of AI best practices, our library of use cases, and our AI white paper library, where you can find best practices around calibrating and measuring AI ROI, around picking and selecting AI projects, and around helping AI teams deploy and get value out of artificial intelligence solutions. So whether you're in the enterprise or you sell to enterprise, check out Emerge Plus. You can find it at emerj.com slash p1. That's p as in plus, and then the number one, emerj.com slash p1. Lots of great lessons in this episode. Appreciate Spence joining us. Without further ado, this is Spence Green with Lilt here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Spence, you folks have grown a good deal. You've got you know big name brand clients, Intel, et cetera, working with your product at this point. When you think about what the difference is between selling you know 
SaaS as we know it today versus selling a sort of AI-enabled solution where maybe there's some unique considerations. What are those different things that you have to kind of bear in mind when you're trying to bring that into an enterprise AI? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think my personal view is that I think where machine learning technology and the enterprise has the highest impact is not so much with replacing people or adding some new capability, but augmenting what people do. So you can think of them as decision assistance systems. And so there are a class of companies that are doing technology-enabled services where you have some traditional business function that's usually fully manual, like bookkeeping as an example. And then you have a system that is transformational in its ability to make that business function more efficient. And that's usually going to manifest itself in increases in accuracy because machines tend to not make mistakes because they get tired, which people do when they're doing tedious work. It tends to result in lower cost because you're taking one person and you're making them do the work of five. And in some cases, you have a scalability that leads to sort of a scalability benefit where you can just do more work with the capacity that you have. And so I think that is very much where our system is, where you can hire traditionally for the translation business function, you can hire loads of people to do it. It's just going to be very slow. It's going to be very expensive and people are going to make mistakes. And so this is a way to take that business function and for the same budget, because everybody has a budget, do two to three times as much work with that same budget. And that translates for our customers and being able to sell in two to three times as many languages and thus make two to three times, you know, have access to customers in those markets. Yeah. If, if you can, if you, if you got case studies with hard numbers on that, with uh, big brands and a person at them, that's, that's definitely, you know, that's strong material. Um, so mm-hmm. in terms of what the consideration is for the the, the customer here, every product is different. So your experience is going to be different than, you know, somebody who does anti-money laundering or whatever. But in the translation space, somebody hires just a team of translators. They've got an agency that handles really, you know, engineering oriented translators in Japanese and in um, whatever, Spanish, et cetera. Um, and then they, they have those folks that are assigned to your account, I guess, to some degree. That's one scenario. The second one is with you guys, um, where, where AI is sort of part of the process. Is there a different onboarding? In other words, you know, maybe we've got to learn from them a bunch of historical stuff so that we can kind of train on their initial jargon and then ask them questions about those things so we can make sure that the NLP system is going to work for them. Or is there a little bit of kind of consultative upfront stuff where we talk to them about what do you think is really different about your lingo? What is what is different in terms of the terminology or phraseology that you folks use, is there some of that additionally, or does that kind of come out in the wash after their first set of reviews with you? Yeah, you're, you're right. So early on in a new customer relationship, we go through defining what quality is. So the reason that people pay for translation in the enterprise versus just using their credit card and getting a you know, Google Translate API key is because they want some quality certificate. So then the question is, what is quality? And that's going to be different for each company. So we have a framework, we call it a text specification um, that has a series of questions that they fill out. And we use that as the benchmark for quality. We train the translators to that. And then we have a QA step that is measured against that so that we can give them a quality SLA. Now, this has an interesting side effect because of the way that our system works, which is that it trains all the time. So it trains continuously while people work. And if you are thinking about it as a machine learning person, you can think of this quality specification as an annotation guide. 
And any company that's doing data labeling, whether, you know, just take, you know, object detection for autonomous driving, you have to tell the annotators, this is, these are the guidelines for labeling something, a person, a car, a tree, a stoplight, whatever. You would never start an annotation task without some definition of the annotation guidelines. And oftentimes what we find in the enterprise is they're doing localization and their definition of quality is, I know it when I see it, which is bad because it doesn't lead to a repeatable sort of quality process. But in this new world of machine learning, it also leads to bad data. And the data that we generate just as part of localization to train these systems, that is what leads to further efficiencies. The systems get more accurate. So you get this virtuous cycle and you want to have really tight specifications on the translation work that's being done. Because what you can think of uh, enterprise localization is English sentences getting labeled with French sentences. And Hmm. so that's the way to think about enterprise localization. Interesting. So, you know, I would have thought top of mind that if I go work with a, I don't know if Lionbridge is a good example here, but, you know, one of the big players in in translation, localization, whatever the formal terminology is, that there would have to be some sort of guideline. Hey, we're going to take things into Spanish. You know, here's going to be the the scorecard by which we know that we've delivered it and you can't really yell at us anymore. And that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, your, your boss can be happy because he helped come up with it. Okay, great. We're on the same page now. So it would seem like that would be par for the course. But what you're saying is, well, a lot of the time, Dan, they just have relationships with people and they know it when they see it. And and that's where translation is. Is it really that frequently that haphazard in, in the current state of affairs? It is. And this wow. is probably the single most surprising finding f- for me personally in going into business. So I came, I was a researcher before this. In the research world where we do build machine translation systems, there's an evaluation framework. We have a metric that we use. And there's an experimental setup that's really been used since the early 2000s that everybody agrees on. And the way that you make progress in machine learning research is you have an evaluation metric, you have some standard test sets, and everybody sort of competes to try to drive up the state of the art. Like ImageNet, but for for, uh, words. That's right. That's right. So there are standard test sets for machine translation too, that everybody's trying to drive up. And I came into the enterprise thinking, ah, there must be some analog there's some way of defining localization quality that everybody is using. Turns out that's not true in much the same way. And I think it's a maturity question. If you go to a business that has a very mature marketing function, they probably have copy editing guidelines versus less mature companies probably don't. They just hire marketers who write things. And you see that roughly the same thing in localization. Because again, translation is just bilingual writing. Yeah. So part of the the additional step for you folks is going into that onboarding with a bit of a kind of taking the brains of the buyer, whoever you're working with, buyer slash subject matter expert, I imagine, whoever, and essentially double checking with them. You probably have a core skeleton that more or less you're going to build off of, but they've really got to tweak all the settings on it. And that means jargon and terminology and their own preferences and this and that. And so that that skeleton gets sort of meat gets layered onto that for them. And and that's got to be something they're a part of as as part of working with you because when you start labeling that data and making sure that it works in their case, you know, like you said, you don't want messy data. So you want to know what is a correct label, what is not. Is this, is this safe to say how your, your onboarding might be different? Yes, that's exactly right. It is a required step to set text specification, as we call it, um, whereas the agencies historically don't do that. If, if, the, if the company has some guidelines, terrific. Otherwise, you know, they don't really do anything about it. But for us, it's extremely important because the efficiency that you get from the virtuous retraining cycle is bound up in the data quality. As I mentioned before, what's really interesting to me and has been always been fascinating to me about translation is every other AI task you can think of, annotation is some extra 
artificial task that you have to pay people to do. They yeah. sit around and they label things for supervised learning anyway. And in localization, the translators are labeling the data just as a part of their everyday work. Huh. And so if you can if you can hook into that, then you can train systems. And that's kind of the whole motivation for for the way that we've set our company and our system up. Yeah. So one last question, but I just want to clarify this bit because this was the part actually from our previous interview that I, I kind of didn't quite get around to, but it's, you just mentioned it. So when we talk about that customization for them, being able to have a machine learning system learn so that, okay, we're getting better and better at making Intel's Spanish stuff more brand coherent off the first pass before the human being has to touch it. I would imagine we would need a ton of almost the same sentence being labeled in order for the for the system to say, oh, this is the brand preferred way of phrasing something like this. It would, it would seem like we'd really have to find individual needles in the haystack that would improve as opposed to like the system somehow learning like a general AI brain in some way. What is that loop? How, how does that constant learning actually occur? Yeah. So the way it works is the system starts out with a general domain system that we train on publicly available data that we benchmark against Google Translate, which you can sort of think about as the federal funds rate. It's like, that is the benchmark of performance. Yeah. And then what you want to do is start to adapt that general domain system as to the specific domain, let's say Intel Spanish microprocessor descriptions. Okay, that's a, that's a very specific domain. And so the way it works is, as the translators work, the interface they use looks like predictive typing. So they're reading English, they're typing Spanish, the system's predicting words and phrases in oh. Spanish while they work. And every time they say, okay, I'm done with this sentence, I finished the translation, that is a new data point. So it's an English sentence and it's translation. And that Spanish translation are the labels for the English sentence. And so you can feed that back into the machine translation system and have it do a learning step. And the whole the whole trick is to make that learning step aggressive enough so that it adapts to the domain rapidly, but it doesn't overfit too tightly. So you just start getting really bad suggestions. And then there's a, there's a separate engineering challenge of how to manage all these user-specific models and you're sort of swapping oh, yeah, them yeah, out yeah. of memory all the yep. time and putting them off in storage and managing the data. It's an interesting cloud engineering problem, but uh, really the, the basic idea is to minimize the time between when the translator has finished the translation and when you can do the model update. Got it. Yeah, I, I can imagine you could take this in the technical direction pretty quick. The folks tuned yeah. in are pretty well aware. There's there's other shows that cover those bases. We're going to try yeah. to talk about the bottom line, but but I completely respect how bespoke that process would be for you guys to have to figure all yeah. that out. So that's pretty neat. Right. So final little bit here is around kind of making that business case. You know, there's a little bit of difference in terms of what it looks like to bring on an AI solution versus not. Again, for you folks, it's actually not that much more high touch. If I'm not mistaken, you're going to have, you know, that onboarding process that's going to structure the thinking. Probably you're also going to have quality control for the purpose of better training those algorithms. But I'm thinking, is that all that different than quality control for checking the work if you just hired the previous agency they worked with. Is it that much different or is there a different way they need to give you the feedback in terms of those ongoing improvement steps? Honestly, Dan, I don't think there's any, there's no longer any reason why you should not adopt this approach to doing localization. I mean, maybe a couple of years ago, you could have said, well, this high touch agency model you know, leads to higher quality or something, but that's just not true anymore. 
And I think the main objection right now is change management. Change management in big organizations is really hard. And here you have a proposition where somebody or a team has been doing a function a certain way for 10 or 20 years. They know it works. They know it's not going to break. And now you you roll up and you say, hi, I can do this 50% of this work yeah. with a machine. Yeah. And everything you thought was true isn't true anymore. To me, that has been the most difficult thing to get around. So for the people who are business leaders who are thinking about this, I think it's a very simple question you can ask your team is, what are you doing right now? I see Google Translate. I see machine translation, people using it everywhere. What are you doing right now to use machine learning for this localization function that's going to return efficiency to the business over time? Whether that comes in terms of cost or scalability, you might have different business objectives. What is your strategy here? What is your machine learning and your data strategy here? And if you don't get an answer to that question, it's a good chance to ask why, because it's long since past not having an answer to that question. Yeah, well, and for you guys, frankly, it doesn't involve as much thought as some other areas, right? If you said, I'm going to build a document search and discovery software for all of your, you know, for Wells Fargo, uh, we're going to have to have a deeper data conversation than we are about translating marketing materials and websites. We're going to have to rethink the whole of our data infra. For you guys, it's, there's less of that heavy lifting, but it, you know what's purported here is that it's worth doing because there's there's costs to be to be reduced um, and and maybe even results to be improved if if we have these criteria that you're talking about for for actually improving them. So change management and in your case, fortunately, it's not that much different than if somebody wanted to you know you're working with one software, you're going to another software, you're working with one agency, you want to go to another agency. Is there any as a closing note here? Is there there any additional wrestling that people have with the fact that you're you're doing ML in some way? Or is it just, you know, you're just another set of pipes and it's just work for them to unplug the agency and plug in you? Or is there also concerns about, wait, what's all that tech you're doing? Is there wrestling with that as well? I don't want to trivialize how difficult it is to change things in the enterprise. For sure. It's, you know, sort of probably difficult to change, you know, like the janitorial service in the enterprise. Very right? hard, I imagine, yeah. Very, very difficult yeah. to change things. And so I, I don't want to trivialize that organizational difficulty. But it is the case that it really is no more difficult than unplug your current agency, plug in your plug-in lilt, yep. right? So that really is it. I do think there's some there is some behavioral and perception change that has to happen, which is simply that, okay, now we're, we're trusting a machine to do uh, some fraction of this work. I might have concerns about that. And so then the natural question is, like, what is a quality guarantee that you're going to give me? Because really, you're just managing a be- yeah. business outcome. If the business outcome doesn't change, or it gets better, then problem solved. Yeah. I think there's oftentimes too much sort of fear about the way that the fact, again, I described our business as a factory. There's like too much concern slash interest in how the factory works when actually you should just be managing the outcome. Yep. And, you know, I don't know, like an example is like Tesla. I think you decide to build a car with a battery first. You come up with a fundamentally different chassis because you put the battery in a certain place versus another car company that chooses to put the battery like where the internal combustion engine used to be. You end up with a better electric car if you build it from first principles with the battery. And you have to have this huge factory to do that. That's very, very interesting. But ultimately, I'm buying the car. Yep. I'm not buying the factory. And oftentimes, I think in localization, people are too fixated on like sort of how the factory works and 
how does the AI work and how does the machine learning work and all that when ultimately you're just managing the business outcome? Yeah, the Lilt's business is a bit different, I think, than most B2B AI solutions in that there's way less entanglement of IT and data infra spaghetti that has to happen for, you know, they use agency. Now they use an agency that is heavily reliant on AI. So for our listeners, this making the business case episode is a bit different in that respect because there's less of those concerns. But even here, Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you brought it up, Spence. Even here, some people are still going to ask about the the factory itself. And and you'll, you know, you'll want to have your answer and you'll want to have your guarantees to alleviate that so you can move forward. So I think that's a very important point for people who are tuned in. Um, So Spence, that's all we got for time on this one. I sincerely appreciate you joining us again for a Making the Business Case episode. Thanks, Dan. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was great to have Spence with us. And again, as I mentioned in the intro, this is really a trend we've seen a lot with firms who are selling into the enterprise, really aiming to bypass as much of the hurdles and challenges of AI deployment and simply layer value on top of what the client is already doing without putting the complexity of machine learning on the lap of the client. Some vendors are going to have to do that. They're going to have to sell transformation, which means transforming culture, transforming data, transforming teams and talent. But some firms don't need that. They just want to deliver value and get paid for it. And Lilt is a good example of someone taking that tack. So an important lesson there. We're going to have a lot more lessons like this on our Thursday episode. So be sure to stay tuned. And if you like what you're hearing here, be sure to drop us a review. I just included in a a recent newsletter one of our latest five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Those mean a lot to us. Helps me learn what you guys like about the show what our listeners really value and helps give me inspiration for new topics and new themes that we can bring to you every single week on our Tuesday and our Thursday episode. So if you enjoy what you're hearing here, go to Apple Podcasts, drop us a five-star review and let us know what is it that you like, what what episodes you enjoy most and what do you want to see more of. Again, I occasionally include them in the newsletter. I just did this last week and I'll probably do it in the week ahead because we've gotten more reviews since then, but we'd love to include yours. So drop us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like what you're hearing. And otherwise, stay tuned for next Tuesday when we get back into AI use cases in our Tuesday episode. We'll be talking about the future of retail. So don't miss it. I'll catch you then.